You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. What's up, guys? Hey. Hey, guys. Good time over here. Uh, it's a good time over here. It is a good time over here. Today's the, I, I saved a man's life today, you guys. Oh, yeah. Max did the Heimlich today. Yeah, in the Dominican in the, place. In Los Papas. I was having lunch with this kid, and he started choking, and I saved his life. The guy you were having lunch with? That guy. Yeah, we were like talking and, and he was like, didn't say anything for a little bit. And then he did the like, no, I'm choking. And then he did the kind of like panic face, I'm choking. And then I like did the Heimlich. And the thing that was crazy about it was that I wasn't totally sure about how to do the Heimlich. And it was the first time in my entire life I was like, I've like looked for that chart that's like shows you how to do the Heimlich in a restaurant. And they didn't have it at the Dominican place. So I just wow. winged it. But uh, it worked? Yeah, he's okay. That's incredible. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, it was a good day. I mean, I knew this podcast was saving lives, but I didn't know that it was happening every day in that it's an important specific day for, way. It's an important day for the podcast and for Noah Davis. <laughs> um, Evan, who did you talk to this week? I interviewed uh, Jennifer Gonderman, who is uh, most uh, recently, she's a s- contributing editor at New York Magazine. Uh, she is amazing. Her book, which is called Life on the Outside, is a finalist was a finalist for national book award and she's an extraordinary reporter and she reports about things that a lot of people don't and she's worth listening to if you want people to listen to you you might want to check out tiny letter tiny letter is a simple powerful uh, way to send an email newsletter and they also happen to be our sponsor this week and uh, we thank them uh, we thank the good people at mailchimp again for always sending us some money <laughs> <laughs> All right, here's Evan Radliff and Jennifer Gunn. <laughs> All right, well, first, thanks so much for coming. Oh, thanks so much podcast. for inviting me. Um, I, I have so many questions to ask you, a lot of which I think center around the fact that a lot of people we have in here, and I would say even myself as a writer, when we talk about narrative journalism or long-form journalism or whatever, all the different words we use for it. A lot of what we're doing are sort of these, uh, you know, we find these crazy characters and, you know, adventure stories and quirky people. And especially if you look at like GQ and places like that, uh, even Wired and things. But you're the type of things you cover and sort of turn into these really compelling narratives are dealing with marginalized people and topics that are really kind of like hard-hitting journalism topics. I guess the first thing I want to ask you is sort of what what kind of journalist do you think of yourself as? Do you think of yourself as a, like a narrative a narrative journalist as a sort of reporter at heart first and a writer second, a writer first and a reporter second? I'm just curious sort of like we'll get into some of the stories but um how do you sort of like self-conceive as a journalist? <laughs> that's a that's like a million dollar question. I don't even know what the answer to that is. But um you know, I uh, I started at a newspaper, so I thought of myself, and still do, as primarily a reporter, and I always think like the best journalists, the best, are, are great reporters, first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Um, and just in terms of choosing topics, and, you know, I've always just tried to write about the stuff that I'm interested in, so, which is sort of a range of issues, but also, you know, a lot of sort of social justice issues. And so the challenge, as I sort of imagine it, is to find compelling narratives on 
some of these issues that people don't cover that often, whether it's the prison system or mental health system or whatnot. And, you know, interesting characters and a way to carry the reader through three, four, five thousand words, which mm-hmm. is, you know, a, a challenge on any topic and a particular challenge um, on some of these on some of these subjects. But, you know, at the end of the day, I'm just driven by the things that I feel that I'm most interested in or that I'm most passionate about. And I try to write the stories that I personally would want to read. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's sort of what drives me. And when you say newspaper was, uh, I know you were at the Village Voice. Is that where you started? Yeah, I started at the Village Voice. I actually started there as an intern in college and stuck around long enough to become a staff writer and was there for oh, quite a while. And so that was my first real job. And what was the, what was the sort of process like getting from being an intern to actually getting to write a story? I mean, how did your first story, let's say, come about? (laughs) At the Village Voice? Um, I think I was still an intern. And, you know, obviously you have all these interns and everyone's aspiring to write something for the newspaper. And how you actually make that leap is is sort of a confusing thing, right, for for all these interns trying to to get ahead. Obviously nobody wants to be an intern forever. And... um, I worked in an office. I worked for Wayne Barrett, who's a legendary investigative journalist in New York City. And uh, it was sort of like going to journalism boot camp. It was like going to journalism school for free, mm-hmm. is how I always thought of it. And, and he worked you incredibly hard. He shared an office with Bill Bastone, who was uh, probably the number one mob reporter in the city and since went on to start the Smoking Gum website, oh, wow. which actually yeah. started in that office. I remember when he started you know, piling up the wire magazines and conceiving of the website very early on. So that was all going on sort of around me. Um, And, uh, and I had some story idea I had typed up, I can't even remember exactly what it was. Um, And I was, you know, trying to get it in the in the news in newspaper really badly. Um, And I gave it to this person, that person, and there was someone who walked around the office, um, who would hand out sa- like sell sandwiches at lunchtime? And Bill Bastone, who who was a good friend, would say, "Jen, have you given you've given that that pitch to everybody? Did you even give it to the sandwich lady? I mean, did you give it? To, who did you give that pitch to? Anyway, at the end of the day, with his help and others, I I got the first story in, and then ended up uh, initially covering um, city politics for the uh, Village Voice, and then ultimately focused on the criminal justice system for five, six, seven years. I think mostly covering state prisons in New York. Uh-huh. Um, that did was you sort go of my specialty. College and then and then no, this uh, then... I think this was. I started there in my senior year of college, oh, okay. so after I graduated. Oh, okay. I mean, I'd had other internships before then, but um, that was the one, the, the last one. The one that actually, you know, you want that internship that's going to lead somewhere or yeah. teach you something useful. And uh, I had a bunch of the ones that are the opposite, but that's the one that, that was the most. Did they pay? Uh, no, they didn't pay. Yeah. They had a lot <laughs> of interns. I mean, they had some people that were basically just opening CDs all day. For, uh-huh. You know, <laughs> and they thought it was cool to work for the... You know, for the music department, and, but not really that cool after a while. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, at least in my view. It was more fun, I thought, too. You know, to work in this office where I was running around to different courthouses, getting documents and, you know, inter- doing interviews and really acting like a journalist, even if you had no training yet. Right. Learning on the job. Yeah. And did you, uh, did you grow up in New York? Did you know New York City already? I went to college here, but I didn't. But this was basically how I learned New York. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so the the process of sort of figuring out, you know, for instance, how to go pull the proper court file or case file or, you know, get into those institutions. Is that something that there was like f- any formalized training for, you know, people said like, oh, to get that, you go down here or you just sort of figure it out on your own? You know, um, Wayne Barrett was famous for always having a sort of an army of interns. So there'd be four or five people and every morning he would He'd be working on some huge investigative story, and every morning he'd dole out the tasks. And, you know, one person would go to state Supreme Court and look for this, and one person would be in housing court looking for that. And so you're just kind of like learning as you went. You know, he'd tell you where to go and maybe the address, and then you'd get to the building and have and sort of be completely flummoxed about what floor and some dusty old municipal building, and you have a lot of unfriendly clerks, and you'd have to kind of find your way. But it was terrific training and, you know— it's, has really kind of paid off again and again over the years. But how did you make that transition? I feel like that's another, there's sort of like the being an intern to kind of like getting your your stories into a publication. And then there, there's also this sort of like working in a certain area, like the kind of like alt-weekly area, and then like moving to uh, magazine-type journalism. And there, there's sort of differences between how those approaches are. There's some very similar, but that's a sort of another jump. How did you make that transition you know, in the years that I was a staff writer for The Voice, I used to freelance for magazines on the side, um, just because I love to write long and, and uh, for different audiences and some, you know, with, for a more national audience sometimes. And ultimately, the, to- uh, the Village Voice, I think this is about 2006, was bought by the New Times chain. Mm-hmm. 
which was sort of the competing chain of alternative weeklies. And so they came in and it took me about three minutes to realize that this that this probably wasn't a place, you know, it wasn't, I didn't want to stick around basically because mm-hmm. I could sort of see how the newspaper was going to change. And, you know, once I got a taste of that, I decided I just, I didn't have any place to go, but one Saturday I just went in, I packed up, you know, six years of stuff. I hauled it out of the office. And then on Monday I just said, I'm leaving, which was sort of, it was sort of, uh, you know, crazy because I didn't have a safety net, but at the same time, I mean, a lot of people were going, people were making decisions about staying or leaving. Some people had no choice but to go. But I just, um, I didn't want a situation where I didn't want, where, where when I woke up in the morning, I didn't want to go to work. Mm-hmm. I'd rather just freelance and, you know, be eating peanut butter sandwiches <laughs> than, than have a job that I really didn't want to go to. And But you've essentially been freelancing since then? Yeah, well, but shortly after that, I started writing for New York Magazine and um, was lucky to meet somebody, uh, an editor that I really liked there. And I worked with her for five years or something and she went on to the times magazine and now i've got another editor there who i like very much and i feel like i feel like the essence of surviving as a freelancer is having an editor or multiple editors that you can work with um sort of you know mutual respect and that's sort of the key to staying sane and getting stuff published right yeah and and uh i imagine also you know a lot of the pieces that you do they sort of need a defender on the inside of of the magazine um because of the topics, I mean, you know, some of these pieces, like you did a piece, I think it's a couple years old, about uh, about sex offenders who lived in a house together. And this story really grabbed me in a couple of ways, one, one of which was that's just a really, really difficult topic to sell a magazine on, you know, sex offenders. It's, it's a topic that you might read about a short piece in the Times about how they can't find any place to live because the restrictions are too tight on what they can be close to. But to actually spend months with them in the house, which it seemed like you did, um, was a sort of portrait that I had not seen anywhere. How, like a piece like that, how do you sit down with your editor and, and sort of say, okay, uh, let's sell this, <laughs> let's sell this up top. This is going to be a four thousand word feature. You know, selling that piece on sex offenders was a lot easier than a lot of these other pieces I've really? tried to sell. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oddly enough but uh the village voice they have a mandate to cover a lot of these topics that no one else covers but once i started writing for new york magazine it's like they have no mandate to cover you know any of these topics really i mean if so it kind of drove me to try to find stories that were going to somehow be compelling enough to launch their way into the into the magazine i mean so you know the sex offender story wasn't actually that was um, not a hard sell not compared to a lot of these other stories. Mm. I mean, it was it was hard it was hard for other reasons, which is you want to hang out for two three months in a house with a lot of sex offenders. I mean, that's like very challenging in its own ways, sort of emotionally, psychologically. Not to mention everybody was a chain smoker, so it was like it was just like walking into a cloud of smoke. <laughs> I mean, I could go on and on, but it was um, and it was you know way out in a Suffolk County, Long Island, so it was a, a long haul and a pretty dicey area um so it was a little hard to to get through all the reporting but the actual selling up top wasn't that hard i wondered in that piece um i think throughout maybe because i'm more inclined to also just sort of think about how the reporter is handling the situation Mm -hmm. just about your safety uh and how how you how you were interacting with them but you're not really in the piece until the end right and at the end there's this sort of really interesting scene where one of the people does I can't remember what exactly what he does, but then gets chastised by others for he asked you out to dinner, I think, or something oh, like right, that. Yeah. Um, and it sort of ha- held more power because you'd sort of held it back. But I was curious, just more in general, was that you know going out there every day or every few days or whatever you did mm-hmm. was that? Do you have safety concerns? Do you tend to think about that. Uh, in this particular piece, that that was not really a concern. Um, I mean, I've had more concerns with other types of people. I mean, I knew what everybody's crime was up front, and mm-hmm. you know, frankly, most of them involved younger people. It wasn't. It wasn't like it wasn't a house full of rapists. Let's put mm-hmm. it that way. And um, and initially, when I went out there, I met this guy who was sort of like the house manager, also a sex offender himself. And um, trying to read the dynamic, I I just it became clear he was going to make sure that nothing. Nothing happened to me per se. And I think part of it was a sense that, you know, we are so castigated and absolutely loathed by the rest of society. Here's some reporter who wants to talk to us and hear what we think. You know, that is such a, you know, who would have ever expected that to happen? It's happened, and I don't want the rest of you guys in this house to basically screw it up and, you know, you know, bother her, come on to her, insult her, whatever. We just got to, you know, put our best face forward here. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was all sort of unspoken, but that was the kind of vibe I got. And that's why in that particular story, I wasn't really feel like 
I was at risk. Mm -hmm. Have you been in uh, situations where you have felt really at risk with other pieces? Um, not. I mean, obviously, that's a situation I try to avoid. Yeah. Um, I, I, I haven't really felt that. Um, but I, I mean, I, you know, I've been in a lot of prisons, and I don't find that particularly scary either because you've got, you know, so many guards around, and it's not like you're kind of running through the cell blocks. It's like a highly controlled, you know, interviewing, as I'm sure you probably know, interviewing people in prison in sort of highly controlled settings. Yeah. But I'm, I remember doing stories with guys that are out on parole who, and then kind of being out on the street with them or in their apartments or stuff, and I think that's probably, you know, some of the, some, now when I look back on some of the things I did, maybe, you know, I could have been a little bit smarter about a couple of things, but I never had a, I never had a bad, bad situation. Mm-hmm. Does, does, uh, just sort of approaching people, people you don't know, asking them difficult questions, does that come naturally to you? Cold calling people, that is that something you feel like you just gravitated towards that or you have to sort of make yourself do that kind of thing? Um, no, I think of myself as kind of a shy person, so it's not like the, you know, the first thing I want to be doing. But um, And in terms of cold calling, you know, I always try to, as I'm sure you would too, try to find somebody to introduce you to somebody. You know what I mean? So you're not just completely cold calling. Um, but I do like to, you know, ask questions more than answer them. So, yeah, you know, so I, do, I feel like when I, if I, even when it gets to the moment where I have to, I've done it hundreds of times and I have to pick up the phone and I'm going to introduce myself and I'm going to, I know I'm going to ask someone, they don't, maybe don't want to talk to me. Mm-hmm. I, it takes me an extra 30 seconds to pick up the phone and do it. Yeah. I, I whereas I imagine sort of someone sitting in the village voice, just, picking up the phone over and over and over again and just digging and digging and digging until it happens and not having that sort of anxiety. But I think if you're, you know, at a daily paper or you're on a very tight deadline on a weekly paper, you have no choice, right? But I think if you're writing these sort of longer magazine pieces, you can kind of, if you have a little too much time to think about it, it might, you know, slow you down for those extra 30 seconds or yeah. 30 minutes or whatever. Yeah, I guess so. I guess it's the luxury of time to sort of... <laughs> just so, don't think, just yeah. pick up the phone. Yeah, exactly. Um, I want to talk a little bit about about how you do find stories, um, and maybe this will be a good example. Maybe it's not, but you have this example of this um, this story about these two. Um, they're both ex cons. I mean, the sort of capsule of the story would be like one of them needs a kidney, and they become friends, and the other one's going to donate the kidney to them. And I just sort of wondered how did you come across that story to begin with, because it seemed like. I, or I couldn't tell if it was recreated, some of it, or if you were in on it from the very beginning, because it reads like, you know, you're sort of going along with what's going to happen to this guy. If that's a good example of sort of how a story comes about for you, I'd be interested to know. It's um, it's kind of an unusual example, but I was in on it from sort of the first, you know, it, was, it wasn't, you know, there was no, re- I don't think there's any recreation in that piece. But Robert Sanchez, who's a guy who did 15 to life under the Rockefeller drug laws here in New York State, um, he went in in, in in the mid-'80s, and I met him in 1998 when he was locked up in Sing Sing for a piece I was doing for the Village Voice. I was looking for people who were locked up under the Rockefeller drug laws, uh, first-time offense, who were doing at least 15 years. And we so he did 15 years He did a full 15 years. Drugs it was cocaine. With, I can't remember yeah. if it was sale or possession. It was his first offense. He was a teenager when he went in. 15 years for possession is Yeah. Insane. I mean, those laws have, have since changed um, or slightly modified. So we um, stayed in touch after that, and after he got out of prison, we stayed in touch. I, took, I, t- I told him, you know, when you get out of prison, I'm going to take you out to lunch. And we'd be, we, we stayed in touch, and he had been out for a few years, and at this, that point, I can't remember which year this was now. It was probably about four, five, six years ago. His, um, his mother, he told me his mother died, and I had sort of met his mother because there had been these rallies when he and other bunch of other people were still locked up, and I, his mom would come to the rally, so I knew her a little bit. And so I went to take him out to lunch in... Um, up in up in Harlem, and that's when he started telling me about his kidney problems and explaining to me. You know, I knew I knew he had some kidney problems, and he, but he was explaining to me about how dialysis works. And he mentioned, "I'm gonna I'm on the transplant list. I'm gonna get a I'm gonna get a, a kidney." Mm-hmm. And I wasn't up there. I was just up there trying to do a nice thing, just to you know be friendly and, and see how the guy was doing, because he's one of he's one of the most lovely people I ever met um, that I'd ever written about in or out of prison. Yeah, he had gone into counseling other prisoners. Yeah, after he, yeah got he was. Out. A, he had gotten a, a BA and a master's while he was at Sing Sing. He was like a real sort of inmate leader, an impressive guy. He was known as sort of the poet laureate of Sing Sing. And, uh, and then he starts talking about how he's going to have this kidney transplant. And, and this guy, Felix, who's somebody he had tried to help, another ex-con, and a guy he'd met after he got out, and how this younger guy was offering his kidney. And suddenly I just, I said, all right, well, 
I might have to write a story about this, you know. <laughs> and I asked him how, how he would feel about that, and he, and he said he, he, he would love it. And so, you know, it's rare that I would do a story about somebody I already knew and that there was a pre-existing relationship with, but in this case, that's what happened. And so I was there from, so there's these sort of scenes in the hospital at Mount mm-hmm. Sinai, and I was there for the, you know, the whole time he was being operated on. You know, I, was, oh, wow. I went to dialysis with him before the operation, a week or two or three before. I met Felix, who was the donor. And I was there when, you know, they're going to the sort of preliminary meeting with the, with the surgeon to decide whether or not they really want to go through with this. And there's all kinds of drama There's a lot involved. of suspense in that story. Yeah, and I, so it I was, have to say, I did, I did not think it was going to work out. That yeah, was, <laughs> yeah uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it, was, it, was, it was a crazy story. And the funny thing is, I mean, I don't know if I should be giving away the story, but... Yeah. All right, so five minutes before the, the operation, of course, Felix, the donor, does something stupid and gets locked up and ends up on Rikers. So there's all this drama around. Is he going to get out in time to donate his kidney? You have to, there's so much involved in terms of setting this up. It's not like you can just not show up for the operation and think it's going to happen. Oh, let's do it tomorrow. It's not going to work that way, right? And these lists that go on for years. Anyway, um, and then anyway, after the operation, Felix gets sent upstate on a couple of cases uh, with three years, and he just got out last week. So yeah. these stories go on and on even after. Oh, so he's, he's he just got his uh, his girlfriend um, sent me a text last week to say he just got home. So you know the piece came out four or five years ago. He went back upstate afterwards for another offense, and he just got out again. So story goes on and on. But anyway, that was a you know that was an unusual way into a story. But yeah, yeah, that, that that's a particular. Yeah. But on, in that story, there's a there, it sort of has multiple sort of twists because you think you keep. I kept thinking the operation is not going to happen because there's. 50 ways in which you think well, this guy's going to back out and there's sort of, sort of this building tension the doctor says you don't have to do this and I'll help you get out of it and if you don't want to and all these things and then and then he gets locked up and then he, just like the judge helps him but then at the end I thought he's not going to get any more prison time because they're going to say look what he did for this other guy but that doesn't happen either in the end they just say all right you're going away that's the whole I, it was sort of like surprise after surprise, and I I was I bring that up because a couple of uh, of writers that we had on have talked about being in the midst of reporting and kind of having this little like thing in their head where they realize I'm getting an amazing story and all I have to do is like sit here and take it in. Do you get that feeling? Yeah, some every now and then. Yeah, I mean that's 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 the greatest high, right? When you think, all right, just keep writing in your notebook, and you're gonna end up with something great. It's just unfolding right in front of you, or you know, all the facts line up in your favor. Obviously, you can't control, you know, what happens exactly, but um, or at all. But uh, yeah, that's 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 the great high, right? Mm-hmm. And you you said that you kept in touch with him, which makes me sort of imagine that you you have some sort of huge cast of characters that you've written about all these years who are sort of swirling around your life, ex-cons and, and you know, all sorts of people. Do you, to what extent are you kind of like either in touch with people you've written about or always just sort of talking to different people from these different stories? You know, I don't stay, obviously I don't stay in touch with everyone and probably not even most people, but if someone wants to stay in touch with me, I'll certainly stay in touch with them. And I, and sometimes you find that, you know, a character or a subject from one story years later will tell you something which will lead to another story, not necessarily about them, but it could be about somebody else. Mm-hmm. I remember once I wrote about a, a schizophrenic woman uh, in New York City who was cycling in and out of jail. Um, she told, and she was in a mental health program. She told me, oh, there's this guy that I met in my program. He just sold a painting for, I don't know, $3,000 or something. I said, what? So I went, then I go down that path, and this guy, he um, was severely bipolar, and I, I think he had lost a leg throwing himself in front of a subway in New York City, and uh, um, but was turned out to be a fantastic artist, and there was a whole group of fantastic artists at a program in Manhattan. I ended up writing a piece about all of them. So sometimes it happens that you know your subjects turn into sources down the road. Mm-hmm. And this, uh, there's a story recently in New York. I don't know. I think it may have been your last piece that was published in New York. Um, that I know we were talking about a lot around the office, and I feel like a lot of people were talking about, which was about this uh, former hip art, hip hop artist, kind of just like small, little lesser known hip hop artist, but um, who turned himself in for a murder that he thought that he might have committed almost two decades before. Talk a little bit about that story and how how you came to it, and sort of like how you ended up reporting that. So there was this artist; his real name is Travell Coleman. Um, known as G-Dep. And a couple years ago, he, so in the, in the, you know, when he was about 17 or 18, he was just selling 
pot on the street, cocaine on the street, and got a gun, and, a, and one night decided to try to stick somebody up, um, and uh, held his gun up at, at a, is, this is East Harlem, maybe one in the morning, near the Johnson houses. So underneath a sort of overpass, which is where the Metro North train runs, sort of a, a dark spot, um, he saw a guy, and he pulled out his gun and said, you know, give me your money. Um, and the guy didn't. He hesitated, and then he lurched sort of forward and tried to grab the gun, which sort of went off script there. And uh, this guy, Travell Coleman, the teenager, fired. He'd never fired his gun before. And, um, and he wasn't sure whether he hit the guy or not or what happened, and he runs away, gets on his bike, um, sort of flees, pedals frantically around the project, and you know, when he gets, circles back around and looks up, up, the, up the road, which is Park Avenue, he sees uh, a car parked the wrong direction, thinks it might be a police car, looks like there's a body on the ground. So it looks like he hit the guy, he doesn't know. Did he kill him? Did he just hit him? He doesn't know. So that question haunts him for the next 17 years. Um, he becomes a, a you know, somewhat successful, um, ra- a pretty successful rap artist for a bit there, and then ends up descending into a very vicious sort of angel dust addiction. Um, and, and it all culminates in one December night when he walks into the precinct, um, a precinct in Harlem, and confesses to shooting this guy, saying, I don't know what happened, and ultimately driven by the question of, did I kill him or not? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and that <clears throat> confession got a little bit of press in the tabloids um, in New York, and then he goes on trial a year or two later and um, ended up getting convicted and sent upstate. It turned out that, he, that this guy had died. They ma- matched it to a cold case, a homicide case, and he ended up um, getting 15 to life and going upstate. Mm-hmm. And I had ripped a, a, one of those stories out of, the, out of I think, like the New York Post and thrown it in a pile in a box. You like know, literally I, ripped it out of the Yeah, literally. Paper. Yeah, you know, because every day I'm reading all the papers and I'm just thinking what, you know, I'm, I'm working on one story thinking what's the next one going to be. And then this sort of pile of growing of stuff I might pursue or ideas or whatever. And so I'm going through that at one point and I see this and I just think, I mean, it's a story that was big news in the hip hop press, XXL. Um, blog the trial, but it never broke out into sort of the mainstream news, really. And you know, certainly New York Magazine readers didn't know that story. And obviously, I don't want to do a story that that someone else already wrote. But mm-hmm. there were, but there were questions I felt like that had never been answered. You know, the, so why did this guy walk in and admit to a, a murder that nobody was looking for him for? And he said, "Well, I've been going to rehab, and I the, the quotes in the tabloids were like, I've been going to rehab, and I felt bad, and I couldn't enjoy my life without getting an answer here, which is all. I was sure that was all true, but I figured there had to be much, much more to the story. I mean, nobody, yeah. especially not a rap artist, you know, the whole culture of no snitching. What would drive somebody to basically walk themselves into state prison and a fifteen to life sentence? Yeah, snitch on themselves. Right. I mean, that's that's just it was just totally baffling, and I just felt like, what was it like to live with that secret for all those years? I just, you know, I just wanted to try to get at those sort of deeper questions i just thought that would be that could be the ingredients of a of a a really compelling story and so that's what drove me to go down that path and ultimately go see him interview his family and put put a whole piece together Mm -hmm. and it does seem like his at least according to him his life sort of unravels around trying to keep the secret or trying to deal with the secret right it's like the weight of the secret never never leaves his shoulders no matter how successful he is in the rap world or no matter how much pcp he smokes he just can't shake it and it's ultimately his undoing. I mean, it just it just haunts him to the point where, um, before he confesses, the year before he confesses, he's spending all this time getting high in this building. I think it was fifteen ninety one Park Avenue, which is a building in the projects in the Johnson houses, which literally overlooks the scene of the crime. Mm-hmm. So he's sitting standing at the window, looking out the window at the Metro North train going by. Just it's just like this magnet bringing him right back to to where the whole story started, and it's just um, he just can't shake it, and. Uh, I just found the whole thing so, so 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 disturbing and um, so compelling that it, you know, it just uh, that's what made me want to write about him. And he's he's in prison for maybe fifteen years. Or he's something. he's got a fifteen to life sentence, so he'll do <clears throat> at least fifteen, and he may do more depending on whether the parole board lets him out. He's an incredibly intelligent guy, and a very talented rapper um, and writer, particularly, and um, wrote an autobiography while he was on Rikers Island. Part of it ended up on a, a website, the introduction or the first chapter or something ended up on a, on a hip hop, um, site and is very, very good. Oh, did he give you any of that to use for the piece or I was did, it all interviews? I read some of it, but it, but I relied on interviews. And there's a lot of detail. How, how much time did it take to get all that? I uh, went and saw him only once. I had a very long interview with him. I mean, obviously you're, 
it, it's incredibly tough to interview people in prison because you have this feeling of like it's a one-shot deal. Ask now. You don't get to come back 10 times. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess you could, but he's five or six hours away. And, you know, in New York State, it's for the most part, uh, in my experience at least, it's like if you go in the visiting room, you're probably not going to be able to bring a pen with you. So if you really want to interview right. him with a tape recorder, you got to do it through the press office. The press office isn't going to set up 10 interviews for you, so you better get it the real stuff that you want first time. And, but you're trying to cover, you know, I'm trying to cover, you know, his whole life. You know, it's hard to talk about. He's, <laughs> right. he's now, I think, almost 40. Start at the beginning. Right. So it's, you know, so basically I did, I tried to learn everything I could before I went, you know, met his wife, did a lot of research, pulled every court case he'd ever been involved in. And I noticed in one of the court cases, 59, 1591 Park, I'm trying to look at like his last arrest before his, before his confession. And I'm seeing this address, 1591 Park. And I'm thinking, where is that exactly? And I realized it's right next to the crime. So obviously I put a star next to that and make sure we ask him what is going on here. Um, and I'm just so glad that I figured out whatever that was because I don't think that detail ever would have come up just from interviewing him necessarily. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, he, he might have even thought of yeah, I don't, the I connection, mean, really. He, he thought about it when it was discussed. He said, oh, yeah, I used to wonder why I always went to that building. Um, I don't think he would have brought it up on his own. Because also he's a person who, this here's somebody who, who smoked PCP very intensively for years and years and years. So there's... Fortunately, he's sober now, so he's you know pretty good interview. But it's you know you're you're you know you have that sort of um, you know really I think affected him of course. Um, so I did a long interview with him. I came back and I did a, I don't know eight or ten phone conversations with him mm-hmm. to try to flesh out those details that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of going over the same anecdotes or the same scenes multiple times to try to make sure that I understood correctly what he was saying or make sure that there's I'm not missing any crucial details and that was sort of the key to being able to really flesh the whole thing out mm-hmm. and even the phone calls are can be a tricky deal too but he's got to call you right yeah he's got to call me um, I was actually the first person he even spoke to from state prison because he was having so many problems with the prison phone system now you you can't you have to have a landline to call somebody you can't call somebody's cell phone and this is in New York State so hmm. most of his family didn't have landlines they were trying to set them up and it was so it was a little bit tricky so i i think i talked to him maybe eight or ten times maybe a half an hour each um but you know sometimes the you know the phone the conversation would get cut off or you can't really hear the person because the phone line is so scratchy and stuff like that but it's uh but um these were these were questions the questions i were asking him asking him and the things he was talking about were things i don't think he'd ever really discussed with anybody before yeah. so i think there was a feeling of wanting to get things off his chest wanting to relieve himself of a lot of these sort of dark memories and try to make sense of how he ended up where he is today. Mm-hmm. And with that sort of thing, I feel like in your own life, your personal life, is there a way to separate? I mean, you're probably getting calls from him, you know, whenever he can or at mm-hmm. certain, mm-hmm. you know, any time of night or any time of day. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel like you try to put all of your reporting and all this cast of characters, many of whom are, you know, criminals or living on the margins of society and try to put them in some place and then it's totally separate from your life or do you feel like everything kind of bleeds together i mean i feel like in an ideal world you know that's the way to be very separate but it's not a nine-to-five job and you can't really make it that way so he could make calls at four or at eight at night and one day before the next day would be eight it would that would be when they would have phone access and so eight wasn't ideal because I was like trying to, I've got two small kids trying to put them to sleep. Oh, really? So, so I would, um, so like they may be in the bathtub maybe, right? Then Travel's calling on the phone one floor up. And so I'm like trying to figure out, can I run upstairs? Can I, I got to ask him about, you know, some particular detail. The story's closing next week, you know, I try to run. <laughs> so it was, you know, it was a little bit, um, you know, that's the thing about prison, right? You can't call him. He can only call you. So you gotta kind of be available, but you know, obviously you can't be 24 seven available. Yeah. So, you know, it was a, it was a constant balancing act with the phone calls, but it it worked out in the end. Yeah. Mommy's got to talk to someone in prison. (laughs) My friend from Elmira's calling. Hold on. Um, That kind of leads me to a larger question, which you have this piece that's uh, more recent in, uh, in CJR and Columbia journalism review. And it's kind of like a book review um, of a book that was published a really long time ago. Talk a little bit about what the, what the book is, but I'm curious how that piece came about, but there's a lot of interesting elements in this piece just sort of about journalism. I mean, it is in CJR, so I suppose that's the point. But um, So what is this book and how did you come about it? writing about it you know columbia journalists review, review every issue they've got a sec something called second read so they've got a journalist writing essentially a book review or an essay about a book that came out a while back um that somehow influenced them or that they really uh, you know respected um and it's sort of explaining why and they called me and asked me if i wanted to write something for that section and um 
it's my favorite part of that magazine, so I thought that might be kind of fun. Um, and I was trying to figure out what book to write about, and I thought about Death at an Early Age, Jonathan Kosel's book, which had which I had read when I was pretty young and really um, just thought was amazing. And I don't I don't know if that really strictly qualified as journalism, so I went with this other book, which is um, by Susan Sheehan, which had started as a four part piece in the New Yorker. I think it was 1983. Um, is there no place on earth uh, for me? About uh, Sylvia Frumpkin, who was a schizophrenic woman and young woman in Queens, and um, she follows her over the course of a year or two as she's in and out of mental hospitals. And a lot of it is set in Creedmoor, um, the state psychiatric facility in Queens. Mm-hmm. And I had read that book long ago, and then reread it, of course, for this for this piece, and just found it to be a real masterful piece of reporting and very sort of inspiring to me. Um, and I remember talk, speaking with the editor. Um, at Columbia Journalism Review, asking him what, you know, we, he was telling, sent me links to some of the better essays they'd run in the past, and I was asking him what are the, what makes a really good, I don't know, second read piece, and he was saying, you know, the ones that work best are the ones that are sort of personal about, so, you know, the reporters personally engaging with the work, you know, obviously not just a summary of the book, but why, you know, it gets a little personal, and I don't really ever write about first person, but... Yeah. It, it kind of made sense in this context because, you know, when I really thought about why was I so drawn to this book, I mean, partly it was just as a journalist, but also because mental illness is a sort of a, been a whole part of my family history. I've got um, um, the two sisters of my father are both deeply mentally ill, not schizophrenic. They were bipolar, um, and sometimes it was considered schizoaffective disorder, which is sort of a combination of schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. Um and anyway, so I ended up writing something that kind of wove together their histories and the story of this particular book. Yeah, it kind of turned into a, a, a narrative, a, a narrative book review in a way, because it, it ties these things together. But um, I was sort of embarrassed that I had not, I didn't know that book. I had not heard of that You know, book I, a lot of people I mentioned it to had never heard of it because, you know, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty old by now, but it's a great book. And I feel like, I mean, that's one of the great opportunities of this section of the magazine is that you can renew interest in sort of great works from the past that you think personally should sort of still stay on the shelf. Yeah. Um, Is there a reason why you haven't written first person in the past? Do you feel like it, it, it's just not the type of work you do? You don't like to do it or it doesn't have a role in the kind of stories you like to chase? Well, I'm much more interested in other people's lives than my own. So I, <laughs> I don't really feel like I need to write first person. I'd rather, I, you know, I just don't find it that interesting. I'd rather write about other people's lives and, you know, learn their, about their passions or their, you know, their secrets is much more interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it made, it's made sense in this particular context, but it's not something that I'm sort of drawn to. And there's enough people writing first person. I feel like let's, you know, I'd rather learn about, about other people's lives. Yeah. And you, and you talk about Sheehan's book as kind of, um, first of all, a sort of extraordinary feat of empathy and, and drawing the reader into the empathy for this mentally ill woman who obviously is, it's so trying for even to deal with her, even almost as a reader to deal with everything that she does. And, um, you know, that's something that seems to be running through your pieces as well. And how do you, where does your empathy come from? I mean, how do you maintain your empathy after encountering a lot of hardship and a variety of different stories? Do you feel like you have an endless well of empathy or do you feel like you come home sometimes and just say, I just, I don't even want to deal with these people anymore? <laughs> um. I don't know about the endless well of empathy, but I, I, don't, I haven't really had that latter feeling of I can't deal with these people anymore. Maybe there's I something mean, in between. You know, I think that feeling of I can't deal with these people anymore, that would be more like if I were a caseworker working in like a child welfare office or some, you know, somebody who's, you know, inundated with 100 cases of dysfunctional people that they can't deal with. Um, but I, you know, I feel like I have the luxury of dealing with, you know, uh, a, a smaller cast of characters, right, of a, a smaller number of people, and I for the most part, pick my own stories. And I feel like once I get, you know, I, I, uh, I feel like once I hear somebody's story, it's, you know, and really sort of understand where they're coming from. For the most part, you know, I, you know, there's usually an empathy there depending mm-hmm. on, you know, depending on the circumstances, but the well hasn't run dry. If that's the, if that's the question. It seems like you can find empathy with people that a lot of folks have trouble finding empathy with. That, that may be true. But I also feel like partly it's just a function from sitting down next to somebody and really talking to them. And I feel like we live in such a, you know, a society which is not just segregated, but, you know, how much do we really interact with people that are different from ourselves? I mean, we, we go to work, we go home, we go to a party, you know, it's, um, so I feel like this is sort of a fantastic opportunity to meet people who are totally and completely different from totally different worlds, backgrounds, interests, different countries, 
it's almost like a passport to a different world with every story. And mm-hmm. I think once you make that trip and go into somebody's home and really listen to them, I think that the empathy is not that hard to, to come by. Mm-hmm. And is there any, do you have a feeling of wanting to affect change with stories or is it mostly about telling stories and sort of revealing these intimate lives of people who are different, you know, to a wider audience? Is there, is there with some stories, is there an element of sort of like, I would like to see this this change and maybe this story will have that impact? You know, when I was younger, I think that was, I, I thought more along those lines, but I, I don't think journalism really, that that should be the driving impulse. Do you know what I mean? I feel like really it's just to tell the truth and to report something as thoroughly as possible and then let the reader decide or the politician decide what the best thing is to happen. I mean, that really that the, that your loyalty should be to the facts of the story and not, I mean, once you get into, you know, just me personally, I feel like if I was being driven by, you know, trying to affect this social change or that social change as my primary goal, then, you know, it kind of invites a skirting of certain unpleasant facts. Do you know what I mean? And I feel like that's really not journalism per se and that that's not really, you know, what my job is. It's really just to, um, sort of get as close to the story as possible and learn as much as possible and hopefully relay that to the reader in a way that's, that's entertaining and, and hopefully moves them in some way. And if it moves them to take some sort of action, that's, that's fantastic. But that I don't think should be at least my primary goal. Mm-hmm. And back to the Sheehan, uh, Sheehan, I guess it would be, um, book that you wrote about. There's a passage in there where you say, uh, in some ways, Sheehan's greatest achievement boils down to the fact that she was able to get the book published at all. My own experience writing about mentally ill people or prisoners, juvenile delinquents, addicts, and others on the fringes of society has taught me how hard this can be, tougher than the challenges of reporting and writing, can be the ineffable task of trying to excite an editor enough to get your story into print. And um, that seemed like <laughs> a worthy reason to, uh, to admire the book more than anything else. I mean, it appeared in, the, in like a four-part thing in The New Yorker, which in some ways is, I mean, New Yorker still does wonderful things, obviously, but it's sort of hard to imagine that happening. A hundred thousand uh, words. But you've also, I mean, some of the stories, you know, that like that, you say just just following sort of one person and delving to their mental illness. That's really hard. But you've you've have some stories like that. You have a story that you wrote that was just sort of like about a guy that got laid off from his job. That literally, that was that's the premise of the story. Like, what's it like to be a guy who got laid off from his job? Which is the kind of like, you know, that's the kind of story you feel like doesn't really get told anymore. That that's a very. Uh, that's a very, you know, 70s journalism kind of story or something like that. And so do you just have an editor who kind of like can get those things in for you? Or, or do you just try to go find the most compelling character first and then go sell it? I'm just curious. I mean, you said it's hard, but so how do you do it? I think, it, you know, uh, all of the above, right? So sometimes you have a character who's so compelling, uh, he or she could somehow lift a, a story that might be, seem an unlikely topic into the magazine. Uh, maybe there's a news hook you know, um, that somehow launches you in at a time when it might not otherwise get published. Um, you know, like sort of the economic crisis might become the rationale for a piece about unemployment that otherwise might not appear. Um, there might be some special issue that somehow this piece fits into that it might not run as a freestanding piece. You know, so there's all sorts of different moves to the hoop that you would try, I think, to get some of these stories in print. Mm-hmm. And then what about the book? So I couldn't tell. Did, the, did your book start as a, as a shorter piece? Yeah, the book was... Um, uh, it's a book about a woman named Elaine Bartlett who had been sentenced to 20 years to life um, on a cocaine case under the Rockefeller drugs laws in uh, New York State. This was back in 1983-84. In 1984, she entered the prison system, and she was sent to Bedford Hills, which is the maximum security prison for women. And she got three little kids, right? Four when little kids. In. Four kids. Yeah, they were all under 10 when she got locked up. And when she was let out after 16 years, she ended up getting clemency from Governor George Pataki. So I was there on the day she got out, and I ended up writing a piece then and then following her over the course of her first year and writing a long piece, I think maybe 18,000 words or something, for The Village Voice. And that became sort of the basis of the book. And the book, which is called Life on the Outside, follows her for, I think it was three and a half years, and what happened to her, the ups and downs of trying to rebuild her life after being sort of out of society for so long. And how did you originally know to be there when she got out? I mean, had you already been corresponding with her? I had written about her once or twice before. I had met her in 1998 when I'd done this piece about the 25th anniversary of the Rockefeller drug laws, which is also when I had met mm. this other um, guy I, I mentioned. So I had a, you know, a relationship with her. Um, of all the people I had written about, she... I found to be uh, very compelling. She was very blunt, which is, you know, great to quote, um, and a, and a very compelling story and a and real nice kids. Um, so I ended up becoming quite close to the family and following them for quite a while. Um, 
as she came back home and tried to sort of reassert her place in the family, tried to find a place to live, a job, um, kind of make amends with all the relatives. Mm-hmm. Did you anticipate it was going to be three years? I knew it was going to be a while. I mean, because I'd already spent one year with her, and I wanted to, you know, I wanted to know what was going to happen. I mean, there's the obvious question of, is this person going to get locked up again for something that they do? Or are they going to, you know, go straight, quote-unquote? And But I, I just felt like there was more, that, you know, we, I wanted to find out more. You know, I'd written 20,000 words. The book, I think, was probably close to 100, maybe a little more. Um, and, you know, I didn't know quite what I was getting to because I had never written a book before. But uh, <laughs> And it truly was a 24-7 operation yeah. for, for all that time, a, a sort of seven-day-a-week operation. Because, you know, family crises would happen or, or events would happen, and I'd be running all over the city. Um, to your cover f- them crises crises, your crises no, 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 hers. not mine hers, okay. you know, so so one of her sisters, for example, when she comes home, one of her sisters is a uh, sort of a recovering drug addict, um very sick um HIV, and so in the course of the book, she passes away, and there's a no- there's there's a number of sort of tragedies that unfold. Um, her son gets locked up on a drug case, there's all those court dates, he ends up then later getting out, so he's sort of a second. Uh, main character in the book and his travails of um, trying to readjust the society are also sort of like a sort of second narrative mm-hmm. fo- follow through the book. Were there ethical dilemmas that came up with you when you spend that much time with someone? I feel like I've known a couple of people who have done books where they really immerse themselves in a family or and inevitably something would come up. You know, there's a possibility of sort of like helping them out in a way that, you know, could influence what happens in the book. And did that sort of thing come up or had you set boundaries with them before that you stuck with? You know, there's like no handbook, you know, for the sort of ethical, for the one million ethical questions you confront, especially in this kind of immersion journalism. You know, when I first started the project, I called Alex Kotlowitz, who had written There Are No Children Here, which I loved um, and was one of my sort of inspirations for this project. And I just called him to ask some advice. And he gave me this one piece of advice that I always followed and I repeat to other people. And he said, you know, you're dealing with people who are, have no experience dealing with the media, um, people who could easily, you know, talk completely against their own self-interest or be easily manipulated if you were that kind of reporter. And that it's, when you spend that much time with somebody, it's very easy for them to start to think that you're their friend as opposed to you're a reporter. And that that is not, you know, just, I just think it's very uncool. Um, and he gave me this advice, which, is, which he said, you know, I always have my reporter's notebook out my pen out. So even if I was doing something like watching TV or doing something that seemed very relaxed as if I weren't working, I made it very clear by keeping, you know, even if I weren't actually taking notes at that moment, I didn't want the line to get blurred. I wanted them all to remember that I'm a reporter and that whatever they say, whatever happens, you know, may or may not end up in this book, but that they shouldn't sort of forget that that's the primary relationship here. And I, I really took that to heart and always did that the entire time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so if you're out to a meal, the pad was on the, the table, you know. Um, and I think that's very important because, you know, I think, you know, a lot of people can be easily manipulated and that's not, I, I sort of consider that to be sort of very unethical. Yeah. And did they, um, did their feelings about you being there change over time? Did they get fed up with you being there with your notebook all the time? You know, um, different people had different feelings about it, but most of the feelings were less about me than about the mom. The, the main subject of the story or the book, Elaine Bartley, you know, because they, her kids, when she came home, were happy to see her, but they're also angry she'd been gone so long. So how they felt about her on any given day affected how they felt about me. Do you know what I mean? Because they knew that she was going to sort of be the main subject of the book. Um, and so sometimes they were happy about that. And sometimes they were less happy about that, depending on how they were getting along with their mother. So it was a complicated family dynamics that I had stepped into. Did you find that they were ever trying to manipulate you in terms of you know, they want to be portrayed in a certain way or they want their you know, side of the story to be told. There was so much going on in the family, so much drama, so many problems, so many things to sort out that that I think was not, you know, obviously people want to be, to, to look look like their best self in the book, but it, I don't think that was the, you know, that wasn't people's primary concern. They were much more, they had so many other things they had to sort out mm-hmm. that I was about, you know, 10th on the list of, <laughs> of things to worry about. Yeah, I can imagine. And, and how, and when you... How did you know when you were finished reporting? Like, how did you know when, okay, this is the point in the story? Because you could follow her for five yeah, years. No, you could follow her for ten me, years. I'd, st- I'd still be doing it, right? No, but, uh, you know, the editor's like, all right, where's that book, right? And <laughs> so it. I signed a contract with a, with, a, with, a, with a deadline, and you had to hit that deadline. So that was, you know, like that sort of, that's sort of the driving force. And I didn't want to get into a situation where I was constantly missing the deadline and getting then dropped by the publisher and all of that. I just wanted to, you know... To, to deliver on time, so yeah. that that's that that's that's why we ended up at three 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 and a half years. And uh, are you someone who always hits their deadlines? 
basically, yeah. <laughs> I feel like the way the magazine industry is now, you <laughs> there's so much competition. There's so many people trying to get into you know, long-form journalism and there's a shrinking number of outlets and a shrinking number of opportunities that you almost don't have any choice but to hit your deadline. I don't know, that's how, that's how I, I mean, it's, it's your job, right? It's this, like this, that's of, like in college when you ask your teacher for an extension, but we're not in college anymore, right? I, I can say not everyone shares your, right, well. shares your opinion, but, um, but yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I feel like it's the way for people to just, it's like a very basic way to distinguish yourself from people who don't hit their deadlines. Like it's a very simple way to be reliable. Well, it's, it's also like, it just is like another, op, another reason to kill your piece. You know, just because you're at, assigned a magazine piece doesn't mean it's actually going to run. Mm-hmm. So not only do you have to get the assignment and do all the reporting and writing, you then, you know, then you have to deliver it on time. And if you don't deliver it on time, it's like, that could just be an excuse not to run your piece. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's, there's so many, I mean, at least in you know, a weekly, like New York magazine, so many people are trying to get their pieces and it's not like they're sitting around waiting for you to be two weeks late on your story. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Unless it's like the greatest story of all time, <laughs> which I know we all think our stories are the greatest story of all time, but at any rate. Right, yeah. Um, well, thanks very much for being on. I really appreciate you coming. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Long Form Podcast. I hope you enjoyed that. I'm Evan Ratliff from The Atavist. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer from longform.org. Our editor is Lauren Kirchner. And uh, every story that's mentioned in that interview, you can find in the show notes online. So I hope you'll check us out next week. And thanks for listening. Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.